Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County. I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today, we have two events to bring you. First is an interview with Dr. John Telberth, president of the Center for Sustainable Economy. John will be talking about the Clean Energy Jobs Bill. This will be the third coverage that we've done on this bill in the Oregon Legislators. Uh, John will also be talking about the relationship between forest and carbon storage. There was a bit of an audio problem at the beginning of John's interview. You will occasionally hear John's voice cutting out. And where it got really bad, I spliced in my voice repeating what John was saying. That just happened twice. Now, after the interview with John, I attended the Rally for Transparency at the Douglas Courthouse steps on Tuesday, where I talked with people at the rally about why they were there. You'll find that very interesting. But first, we're going to speak with Dr. John Telberth, Senior Economist from the Center for Sustainable Economy. Did I get that title right, John? You did. Hi, Francis. Um, I'm also the president of the organization, so I go by two titles. Okay, great. Uh, tell us a bit about the Center for Sustainable Economy. Sure. Well, uh, Center for Sustainable Economy is a uh, environmental economics think tank. Um, we like to call it a, you know, we straddle the divide between a think tank and a do tank. Um, so we so we do like typical think tank activities where we conduct research and come up with policy innovations and um, do you know kind of technical uh, type type work. But we translate that into policies on the ground where we then do more of a traditional uh, environmental organization where we kind of mobilize constituencies for change. So um, so we typically you know put out studies on things like deforestation and climate change and inequality and. Uh, then develop policies around those and then work with partners to get those policies in place. Uh, as you may know, we were founded uh, way back in the late 80s, early 90s as Forest Conservation Council in uh, Eugene, and we were one of the lead organizations uh, taking on the uh, um, destruction of the ancient forests and uh, protecting the northern spotted owl through litigation and mapping and uh, some economic analysis and working with the Clinton administration on the Northwest Forest Plan. So we've got a long history in Oregon. And uh, we kind of, because of our expertise had accumulated over the years, and we had a lot of folks uh, coming to us for um, expertise and benefit-cost analysis and uh, sustainability indicators, we kind of switched our name in, in 2003 to Center for Sustainable Economies. So that's where we're at now. And uh, like I said, we, we consult with Parker partners. Uh, half our funding comes from uh, doing work for other organizations, and the other half comes from in, um, initiatives that we uh, implement on our own, including four initiatives, Wild and Working Forest, Climate Justice, Green Infrastructure, and New Measures of Progress. And if anyone wants to look at our website, sustainable-economy.org, we'll get you more into the details of those programs. I I remember the Forest Conservation Council. I was working at Umpqua Watersheds doing uh, monitoring the timber sales from BLM at that time. Yeah, I believe we teamed up with you on, on litigation and appeals uh, on That's the Umpqua right. National Forest. That's right. 
Uh, you recently posted a policy brief on your website called Beyond Cap and Trade. And I'm going to put a link to that policy brief and the podcast site here. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, this talks about the goal of Oregon's cap and trade legislation. Uh, could you summarize what that legislation is and should we support it or should we not support it? And it's been called the Clean Energy Jobs Bill. That's the common name for it. And it's been cooking for several years now. And the environmental community, uh, for the most part, is uh, really eager and anxious to you know, get this finalized and in place. But our message, and it's a uh, um, message we started putting out last year, was uh, take a hard look at it because it's only one small step in the direction of a robust climate agenda for Oregon. There are many other pieces that need to be dealt with, including uh, no new fossil fuel infrastructure, um, a, uh, making the uh, polluters, not the taxpayers, pay for uh, climate damages, uh, getting a... Uh, system in place so that projects that the state authorizes and funds minimize climate impact. So there's, there's all these different elements of a robust climate agenda that uh, we believe are best understood as part of this new kind of Green New Deal that's been, uh, uh, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Congress uh, is taking the lead on putting out that vision of what a uh, comprehensive climate solution looks like. The cap and trade, the cap and invest, clean energy jobs approach in Oregon and elsewhere is always just going to be one small piece of the puzzle, not not like you know, it can't just be it in terms of Oregon's climate agenda. And our concern was that it was being viewed as a comprehensive solution. Nobody else was working on these other pieces. So we put out this uh, uh, policy brief called Beyond Cap and Trade Towards a Green New Deal for Oregon that touches on uh, 11 of the other pieces of a robust climate agenda that need to be worked on uh, in tandem with uh, clean energy jobs. So we're not asking people not to support clean energy jobs, although we think it's uh, kind of flawed at this moment, at the moment, and needs some, some serious amendments. But we're we're asking people instead to recognize that, uh, regardless of what happens with uh, clean energy jobs, we need to move way beyond that and start embracing these other policies. And uh, one of those, of course, that we've been championing is uh, uh, getting rid of this industrial forest model that has ravaged our state for so long and replacing it with uh, the Climate Smart Alternatives. Well, I definitely want to talk about that forest model. Uh, but first, I want to talk about the other complementary measures that you describe in your policy brief, uh, like um, surcharges. Could you describe those complementary measures of fossil fuel risk trade funds and the fossil fuel yeah, bond? Absolutely. So uh, one of the big problems with Kind of the climate crisis is that all of the costs of climate change are now being borne by taxpayers um, and state and local governments. And state and local governments have to pay for um, climate adaptation. Like if you're, you know, uh, if you're if you're by the ocean, the governments are trying to figure out how to, you know, where to get the money to build seawalls and move people out of harm's way. Uh, if you're in wildfire zones, you know, obviously we have massive increase in fighting wildfires. Uh, and then there's the infrastructure itself, which is dangerous and hazardous, subject to catastrophic explosions and spills. Taxpayers are paying all these costs related to fossil fuel infrastructure and climate change. And uh, so there's this 
policy mechanism that we've been promoting that's gaining traction now um, called fossil fuel response, which will shift that burden back to where it belongs in an efficient economy, which is on the backs of the polluters. And the fossil fuel response programs have two major uh, components to them. The first is a suite of what are called financial assurance mechanisms, like surety bonds and performance bonds, that will, like say, in the event of a catastrophic explosion, force the owners of that infrastructure to pay all of the public costs around cleaning up the mess and, and recompensating uh, tech, you know, residents and businesses for damages. And the second big stream of the fossil fuel response is a surcharge on all fossil fuel transactions in the economies, uh, which will capitalize a what we call the fossil fuel risk trust fund that will be used to pay for climate adaptation, et cetera. So that's uh, one of the key elements of this Green New Deal is to um, put in place programs to shift the cost burden of climate change back onto the polluters where it belongs. And you also describe tax subsidies that we currently give to the polluters. What are those? Correct. So uh, element number, I can't remember in the brief where we called it, number five is called rescind or redirect harmful subsidies. And I think few people are aware of the degree to which taxpayers are subsidizing through various tax breaks and expenditures polluting industries. Polluting industries like the timber industry, fossil fuel industry, and developers. Um, I mean, it's astounding how much taxpayer uh, dollars are going into uh, subsidizing these these industries. For instance, the timber industry receives over $300 million a year in various tax breaks that come directly out of the pockets of government, impacting their ability to support schools and public services and health care and infrastructure. And, uh, you know, uh, these the largest, most powerful timber companies in the world, Weyerhaeuser, um, you know, et cetera, uh, are getting away with paying almost no property taxes, which are coming out of, again, the pockets of counties. And uh, so this strategy, general strategy, is for the legislature to carefully review all of the subsidies and tax breaks that have in place right now and make sure uh, those are aligned with promoting good practices and good behavior as opposed to just being given away for free. Like, for instance, uh, the Jordan Cove project is being offered a big tax break, I understand, and do you know about that, and do you know how and or if the clean energy jobs bill would impact the Jordan Cove project? Yeah, it's one of our biggest critiques of clean energy jobs is that it doesn't include a prohibition on new fossil fuel infrastructure. And it could easily do that. It could easily do that by, um, you know, if you want to get into the weeds, there's this allowance system where, you know, uh, companies have to then you know, go into an auction to buy allowances to pollute. There could just be a prohibition on allowance allocation to any new fossil fuel infrastructure facilities, and that would take care of it. But unfortunately, the bill leaves that out. And as a result, anything that's accomplished by clean energy jobs in terms of emissions uh, reduction could be completely undone by allowing new big facilities like Jordan Cove to, to come into the state. So this is a major hole in the clean energy jobs uh, framework right now. And I understand Jordan Cove would be our largest climate polluter in the state of Oregon. I think it's, what, 2.2 million green, metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions? 
Do I have that right? Do you know? Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that it, it also goes to one of the other weaknesses of clean energy jobs is how the emissions are counted. And the scientific standard is life cycle analysis, where, like, for instance, Jordan Cove, it's not just the energy consumed at the export facility, right? It's like all the upstream fugitive emissions of methane from where it was extracted, all the downstream emissions associated with consumption. So if those were all counted, uh, Jordan Cove would be responsible for 36.8 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year. That's even bigger than the timber industry's annual contribution to, to uh, emissions. So it would be by far the biggest source of emissions in the state, even bigger than the, the emissions of the timber industry. Um, the, the entire industry in the state, which is 33 million right now. And the Clean Energy Jobs Bill would put a cap at that at 25,000. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that they would have to purchase allowances to pollute, but uh, they wouldn't be counted. They wouldn't be required to purchase allowances up to the 36. Point eight million, which right. is their actual million, they'd only be required to purchase allowances up to the two point five million, which is their in boundary or in state emissions. So most of their emissions would be excluded any way you look at it. And it's amazing <clears throat> that they would actually pollute more than the forest industry. How does the timber industry emit carbon? So the timber industry right now, in a study we came out with in late 2017, which was then corroborated by Oregon State University a few months later, uh, the timber industry is currently the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And uh, people, you know, they, they think about emissions in terms of fossil fuels being combusted, but there's also emissions associated with agriculture and forestry. Um, trees are like coal, right? They store lots of carbon, and when they're cut down and turned into wood products, uh, over time, eventually, most of that carbon dioxide escapes into the atmosphere. So that's one big source of emissions just from the um, decay of the wood products itself. But when you also, when you clear cut, you also eliminate carbon sequestration capacity. Um, like carbon that was once being taken out of the air isn't any longer. So that causes uh, the concentration of greenhouse gas, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to rise. It's called an indirect emission. So you've got to add that too. And then there's this whole host of emissions associated with chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides and burning of the slash and the processing of the wood products itself. Uh, on top of that, of course, there's all the transportation fuels and energy consumed by log trucks and logging equipment. So, we, so it all adds up to, uh, we estimated about 34 million metric tons per year. OSC wow. corroborated that. That is right now our biggest source of, uh, emissions in the state. It's left out of the clean energy jobs framework, despite, um, CSE has, having, um, helped to write amendments to the to the bill to include the timber industry. So that's another big omission from this framework is the timber industry. Oregon forests really have the potential to store a lot of carbon. Do, do you know what that potential is? Absolutely. So um, most people think of tropical forests as the the place where we could store the most carbon, but turns out it's actually the temperate rainforests of the Pacific Northwest from Northern California to Southeast Alaska. Uh, these forests have the potential to capture and store more carbon per hectare than almost any other terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. Um, there's, you know, a lot of the reason is because uh, the soils are built up over time. There's longevity. You know, tropical forests go through their cycles pretty quickly, and we all learned and 
um, earth sciences class about the real thin soils in the tropical forest. Well, we've got these massive, deep, rich soils that have been building up and storing carbon for tens of thousands of years. And so, um, so our forests uh, are the densest carbon stocks if allowed to grow into old growth are the could be the the most like the densest carbon stocks on the planet, but of course we don't do that anymore, right? The old growth has been ninety uh, percent of it has been removed. Uh, the few fragments on federal lands are barely hanging on, and the entire uh, matrix of state and private land uh, is being managed uh, as one giant short rotation tree farm that's never allowed to grow into old growth conditions. So this is the big problem, and it's a squandered opportunity. Yeah, so if I understand from what you're saying that Oregon, Oregon forests have the potential to store more carbon than any other place in the world, including tropical rainforests. Yeah. What a, what a treasure we have if we can just develop that treasure. And that opportunity is being squandered. We're going in the exact opposite direction. Was that an Oregon State University study that came out with that finding? Yeah, I'm trying to think of who. So, like, researchers have been going into the old growth forest, like in the H.J. Andrews, and measuring the carbon density, um, but they've been doing that all across the Northwest in old growth. So there's University of Washington, OSU, H.J. Andrews research. I mean, this is kind of a common knowledge that the old growth forest stocks in the, the Northwest and Southeast Alaska are the densest in terms of carbon density on the planet. Our county commissioners still come up with statements just recently that says – that it's much better to cut down these decadent old forests and plant nice young tree plantations that grow fast and store more carbon than the old growth. That is still the the myth of the timber industry that that we know down here. Yeah, I mean that's just an outright falsehood, a lie, and uh, um, you know hopefully with that generation that believes that will kind of move on and we could get younger people who really know the science are really uh, aware of the potential uh, into office. I mean, we've got to kind of flush those people out of the county commissions. They've been there way too long, and they're getting in the way of uh, uh, a robust climate agenda. Now, you, you mentioned that the timber industry enjoys tax break. Where are they afforded? Do you know exactly where they're afforded these tax breaks? Yeah, so we've got uh, – we're, we're going to be – coming out with a report uh, in about two months uh, called Environmental Harmful, Environmentally Harmful Subsidies in the United States. And we're going to take a look at different places and different industries. And it's one of our first publications in the series is the Oregon timber industry. And it's going to go through um, all the ways in which the timber industry is subsidized in Oregon. And so property tax breaks are huge right now. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, industrial timber landowners get a much uh, better deal when it comes to property taxes than you and I do on our homes, for instance. Uh, they get to completely exempt uh, their timber from property taxes. They get these obscene tax breaks for what they call environmentally sensitive logging equipment, which is actually skyline large yarders, which are some of the most destructive logging equipment on the planet. They actually get tax breaks, property tax exemptions for that. Uh, and that's just the, the, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Then you drill down into like the mills that are located in what are called enterprise zones, get massive uh, tax breaks. There's subsidies, uh, like, you know, uh, so like tons of money is actually spent 
uh, through lottery funds to actually subsidize mills, subsidize logging. So we're going to make a tally of that and so everyone can actually see what uh, we're getting for those uh, tax dollars. We're getting lots of destruction. We're, um, we're getting massive greenhouse gas emissions. We're losing our water quality. Our drinking water is being contaminated. That's what we're getting for all these subsidies and tax breaks. And so our report, which is coming out soon, will document that. And um, one other thing is, as we do have a bill, we've worked on a bill with uh, uh, there's a number of co-sponsors right now in in front of the legislature to rescind or redirect those some of those tax breaks and subsidies to make sure that the recipients are landowners who are actually doing good practices on the land. So if you're doing good practices, if you're logging and leaving a healthy forest behind, you continue to have those tax breaks. If your land's covered by plantations, logging roads, and clear cuts, you're not going to get the tax break anymore. So that's the essence of this bill, HB 2659. It's in the legislature right now, and we'd love people to kind of look it up and lend support for it and show up when the hearings happen uh, in a month or so. Well, that's fascinating because, you know, Douglas County uh, has closed our libraries because we don't have enough funds. Uh, A large percentage of the private land in Douglas County is owned by the timber industry. And so they don't get the full taxes. I understand from what you're saying, they don't get the full taxes off most of the private land in Douglas County because it's owned by the timber industry. And so therefore we really struggle. So if we could reform this tax subsidy problem, Douglas County maybe could open a library again. Exactly. Douglas County would be one of the prime beneficiaries of HB 2659. It would um, see its tax revenues go up by tens, if not over $100 million per year. And then under the terms of this bill, 70% of those funds would just be treated like any other property tax fund. It could go to libraries and schools and public services, et cetera. But 30% would be earmarked to put into what we call climate-smart forest practices, paying the landowners who know how to take care of the land, who know how to do forestry right, paying them to actually um, helping to subsidize them to do good practices. And so through this bill, we're not only helping counties like Douglas pay for social services and schools, but we're actually expediting the transition, giving the incentive to make this transition from industrial forest practices to sustainable practices. I want to talk more about uh, climate smart forest practices, but first we're going to take a break. Uh, We have been talking with Dr. John Telberth, Senior Economist and President for the Center for Sustainable Economy, and we'll be right back. We are back from our break. This is Conservation Today, and we're talking with Dr. John Telberth, President and Senior Economist for the Center Sustainable Economy. Uh, John was just talking about the tax breaks that the timber industry receives, especially the property tax breaks, and the other options for ways to log our forest. But I want to talk about that, but first I want to ask you, is there a tax break that timber industry gets if they own over 5,000 acres, as opposed to a tax break landowners do not get if they own under 5,000 acres? Do you know about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the timber harvest tax. Um, And some deal back in the early 90s, uh, 
back around 1999-2000, Governor Kitzhoffer worked out a deal with the major timber companies to get them out of paying to eliminate the timber harvest tax for uh, the large owners, but keep it intact for the small owners. I mean, I have still to this day can't figure out what the reasoning of that is. There was some rationale that they would pay a little more to make up for it in property taxes, but that actually never happened. So right now we've got, and so this is just one of the many ways in which corporate industrial forestry is subsidized in the state. The, the unfortunate aspect of that is that it uh, remains in effect for the smaller forest land owners. So this is exactly the opposite of what we need to be doing in terms of a just uh, tax system, as we should be putting the taxes on the uh, the owners that are doing the most damage to the land and not penalizing the small landowners. But that's exactly how our tax system is structured now. Once I talked to our one of our county commissioners about this tax subsidy, and she said, well, they're do, we're doing this because they are job creators, and we have to support our job creators. Except I understand that Weyerhaeuser, who is a major uh, recipient of this tax subsidy, they ship most of their logs to Asia, and they bypass our local mills. Yeah, what the commissioner said doesn't make sense at all. It's like with a given amount of money, taxpayer dollars, uh, you could create a few jobs or you could create a lot of jobs. And if the money was spent, if the tax breaks were given to produce, you know, uh, forest landowners who um, directed the logs to local manufacturing and uh, used what we call climate smart forestry techniques that apply, employ five times the amount of jobs uh, than these mechanized techniques uh, that the warehouser and the industrial forest land owners, we could get a lot bigger bang out of those same dollars than we're getting right now. So uh, what the commissioner said just doesn't make sense at all. Especially with the laxed forest regulations we have, like no requirements for a buffer next to small streams or allowing helicopter spraying chemicals in rural communities. Do you happen to know if other states have better regulations on private land logging than Oregon does? Yeah, absolutely. Oregon has the worst forest practices in our region. Uh, states like Idaho and Washington and California all have uh, forest practices acts that have more stringent regulations on things like uh, buffer zones along streams or uh, um, places where you can't spray, you know, to protect schools and public health. So Oregon's kind of in the Stone Age uh, when it comes to its Forest Practices Act. At the heart of it is this failure to to actually even recognize the difference between a tree plantation and a forest. We're, we're not even at that point in our forest practices uh, laws yet that we can even distinguish between the two. Yeah, it makes all the difference in the world when it comes to wildlife and clean water and biodiversity and carbon, et cetera. So we've got a long way to go to modernize Oregon's uh, Forest Practices Act. But we started that process, and um, a couple of years ago we had legislation introduced to do that. Uh, it's still in play this session, but uh, we really need to wake up and bring our forest practices laws into the 21st century. Is the legislation introduced this session, is it to increase the buffers on small streams? Currently, there's no buffer required on small streams? Yeah, so we've got one piece of legislation um, Representative Paul Holby from Eugene reintroduced called, you know, that's the comprehensive 
modernization of the Forest Practices Act that we're looking for, and it includes like 10 different elements. And one of them is, yes, to bring the uh, buffers on streams and rivers and wetlands up to scientific standards. Uh, the scientific standards that are in place right now on BLM and Forest Service lands are, are actually fairly good. And so that, there's no reason that that should not be also put in place on uh, state and private lands. But it includes many other elements, such as the requirement that these big landowners uh, develop long-term management plans that the public is able to see so we know what's coming down the road. They should be committing to long-term management plans that set aside forests to develop late successional characteristics, that protect drinking water supplies, that keep clear-cutting off uh, landslide-prone soils. These would all be part of a management plan that the public can actually review and be involved in influencing. Right now, we don't have that, uh, as you know. We don't have any requirements for forest management plans, um, which makes our whole system, uh, it's really irrational. People don't know what's coming down the pike till the clear cut's about to go in. It's, uh, it's like I said, we're, we're kind of in the stone age of forest practices laws, and uh, this really needs to change. Right. California has timber management plans require private industrial forest owners to do timber management plans that the public can see and comment on because, after all, it's in a watershed that impacts the public. I mean, we're all downhill from from these practices or exactly. next door. So the exactly. public should be involved in what impacts the public. These are public resources. Everybody says, well, it's private land. We can't require this for private land. But that's not entirely true if, you know, those of you study – environmental law know that property rights are kind of, they call it a bundle of sticks, where you have rights to do certain things, but you don't have the right to contaminate, you know, destroy what are called public trust resources. These include soil fertility, biodiversity, clean water, uh, the, the stability of the climate, et cetera. Those are public resources that we have the right to uh, require protection of, and that's where having these plans in place ahead of time so we know what the plans are for the next 10, 15 years, and we're not surprised by what's happening. That's that's uh, how we can leverage that. And so let me just also say, so, there's a, so that legislation is there. We also have HB 2656, which would uh, um, actually, you know, and, and, and this came, kind of came out of the scare we had last summer with toxic algae blooms in the Salem water supply and then the subsequent finding that 43 other drinking water supplies are at risk from these toxic algae blooms. Turns out industrial forest practices are at the heart of the, that problem as well. Uh, and we could go into the details in a minute, but what this bill would do would be to prohibit clear-cutting construction of new logging roads and aerial spraying of chemicals and fertilizers in our drinking water supplies, um, something we should all have – like most people assume that that's what is the case right now, but it's not. Our drinking water supplies are under assault by these industrial force practices, so this bill would actually end them and uh, force, force the companies to use climate-smart water protective uh, um, practices in, in our drinking water supplies. This was Salem's water supply last summer uh, when they were trying to get to the bottom of uh, the toxic algae bloom outbreak in Detroit Reservoir. And uh, even the Army Corps of Engineers used the word extreme logging uh, to to, to explain what some of the problem was there. So it's time we stopped clear-cutting our drinking water supplies. It's kind of senseless, and it's putting all of us at risk, and this bill would would, would do that. One of the ways that we can stop this is by starting something called the 
climate smart forest practices, which you mentioned in your policy paper. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, I mean, the good news about uh, forests and climate um, is that it doesn't involve, we don't have to just simply set aside forests and not cut timber, right? There are ways to cut timber and that actually enhance uh, the forest's ability to uh, capture and store carbon, and we call these climate-smart forest practices. And they include a suite of uh, practices, including afforestation, reforestation, ecological restoration of plantations, which is like getting in and thinning the plantations to expedite their growth into to old growth conditions, uh, long rotations, uh, selective harvesting, and then, yes, setting some uh, forest aside as forest carbon reserves. So, uh, so what these climate smart forest practices do is they operate at this sweet spot where there's four different goals, uh, are being advanced at one. And one of them is reducing emissions. Uh, the other is increasing sequestration. The other is increasing carbon stored on the land. And the last one is to improve resiliency of the landscape, uh, reducing fire risks, improving water flows, et cetera. So you could accomplish all four of those goals at once through these practices. And so that's what, if this uh, tax reform bill passes, for instance, we'll have a pot of money. It could be a couple hundred million a year to pay landowners to do these kind of practices. And so, um, which is actually, a you know, jobs benefit, as drinking water benefit, as fisheries benefit, and as climate benefit. And so that's um, where we need to start putting our money in if we're going to um, kind of reverse this model, the industrial forest model, we need to start investing in these climate-smart alternatives, and that bill would help us do that. Uh, so the current bill, uh, uh, the cap and trade legislation, or the clean energy jobs bill, would actually produce money to help pay for the new kind of uh, timber harvesting? Well, no, I was talking about the Forest Carbon Incentives Act, uh, the one that okay. we're working on called, you know, okay. HB 2659. The problem with clean energy jobs is that they originally thought it was going to generate uh, enough money to do, like, major investments in forestry. But as it turns out, and several analysts have looked at this so far, most of the money that's going to be raised by that bill is going to have to go into the Highway Trust Fund to pay for, uh, you know, Whatever they could come up with in in terms of transportation, uh, that you know that's going to reduce emissions from the transportation sector. But in reality, the use of that fund is for freeway expansions, and uh, you know maybe it's going to some of it's going to be for bike lanes and transit. But uh, most of the money generated by clean energy jobs is going to be put into that highway trust fund, and that's a big concern. Ah, I see. Right. So if if. Uh... Forest owners want a, a volunteer to do climate smart forest practices. Where would they go to learn how to do that? Well, that's a that's a good question. So OSU has put out um, uh, several studies. You know who's actually the Sayusla National Forest has been held up for quite some time now as a model of how to take these landscapes that are covered by tree plantations now and do restoration work to help those forests uh, grow back into real real forest and older late successional forests. So the Sayuslaw National Forest has a, has a really good model for that. And uh, we're putting together a publication scheduled for later this year uh, called Climate Smart Forestry, Prescriptions, Practices, and Economic Benefits that will help kind of summarize where landowners can go to look for the actual prescriptions to put in place to do climate smart forestry. Fascinating. 
is there anything that we should know about the Oregon Forest Practices Act uh, that we haven't talked about that's important in this uh, conversation? Just that it needs to go and be replaced by uh, modern forestry laws, and uh, we're working hard to do that. But as you know, the timber industry is uh, a very powerful force in the legislature. It's the number one campaign uh uh, contributor for, for eight or nine years running. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've been able to keep legislators in their back pockets through these campaign contributions and get them to continue to continue their tax breaks and subsidies. So uh, we've really got to turn that equation around. And I believe it starts uh, not just in the legislature, but in the county commissions. We really need to focus on these races. Um, it's encouraging, though, to see the the uh, the number of new candidates who get this uh, that have been elected into the legislature this year are starting to get elected to the county commissions who are willing to take on the old guard and the timber industry and start questioning their practices. So I'm kind of encouraged that uh, the politics are beginning to change. Well, yes, I hope so. And I'm, I'm going to believe your encouragement there. You know, here in Douglas County, uh, ever since the, the 1936 ONC Act, which gave the counties 50% of the logging receipts from BLM lands, we have become so dependent on logging. And even in our latest commissioner race, most of the candidates in the race said we have to get back into the woods and get back to logging BLM lands because we need that revenue. And on the other side of their mouth, they talk about how we have to diversify our economy. And here in Douglas County, we have a lot of the winery. The winery industry is coming in. But the county doesn't get 50% of the profits from the wine industry. They only get 50% of the profits from logging BLM land. So it, it's impossible for us to diversify our economy without that 50% of the profits from from somebody else. But that's such a weak argument because they have an option, an alternative staring them in the face, that would generate 10 times the amount of money they're getting from logging uh, receipts, right, which is reforming the property taxes. That would bring in uh, – stop handing out property tax rates to the timber industry. That will get you way more money than trying to bank on uh, receipts from BLM timber sales. I don't know why the commissioners don't look at that option. It's staring them in the face. Is it a county option, or do they depend on the state to uh, revoke the harvest tax subsidies? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, but I mean, the, the counties are the who, who would benefit from revoking these property tax exemptions. And they, if they bound, if we, if we just even had a half dozen county commissioners step forward and say, this is good for our state, we should do this, um, the legislature would do it. It doesn't take that much, uh, to convince, uh, you know, the, these legislative committees. So we're hoping commissioners will step forward and support, uh, this bill, HB 2659, to do that instead of, like, scratching their heads, looking for ways to get more money from, from timber sales. This is a much more viable option. Yes. Uh, well, thank you, John. It's been a fascinating discussion. Yeah, it's been great. I'm going to put your website down in the description to the podcast here. Do you have newsletters or memberships? How can people get involved with the Center for Sustainable Economy? Yes, through our website is the best way. So we have two websites. One is sustainable and the other is seen, S-E-E-N dot org, which is our political, uh, C4, uh, where we, where we do our work in our legislature. And through those two websites, um, you'll get information about what we're working on and how to get involved. And, uh, um, we, we'd love to hear from you. 
Well, great. Well, thank you. Uh, we have been talking with Dr. John Telbert, Senior Economist and President of the Center for Sustainable Economy. Thanks very much, John, for your time. Thanks, Francis. Take care. We are going to take a break. This is Conservation Today, and we have been talking with Dr. John Telberth, Center for Sustainable Economy. When we return, we will go to the Rally for Transparency at the Douglas County Courthouse. We are back. This is Conservation Today, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. It is Tuesday, February 19th, and we are on the steps of the Douglas County Courthouse at the Rally for Transparency. People have gathered from all over the county to demand the county to be more transparent and inclusive of the public and their decisions. Let's start by talking to someone holding up a sign saying, No Quarry in Glide. What's your name? Oh, my name is John Holing. The reason we don't want a quarry is three things, air pollution, water pollution, and visual pollution. We appealed this once before to Luba, and they um, just said like you couldn't this. produce it. They, they don't yeah. know how to take it off right yeah. So they just recycle the same thing. What's, what's your name? Terry Alfather. Hi, Terry. What brought you out here to the demonstration today? Well, uh, pretty much the same as everyone else. This is our home, and there we've got a few people in power who are destroying it, and they're lining their pockets. They're destroying our parks. They're shutting down our landfills. So the dumping is happening in the woods, which is another horrible thing. And I care. I care. And we're trying to educate other people out here. We're very peaceful, and we want you to come and care and speak up because this is our home, and we have a right to vote on these things that they keep doing behind our backs. They're just lining their pockets and ignoring us. There, how many landfills are they closing? The, <laughs> Do you know? Rural. The Everybody rural who has to travel like 50 miles or so to dump, they're not doing that anymore. They're dumping in the woods. So, and, and this is, somebody brought up a really excellent question. Why are they closing the outskirts and not the ones that are immediate here in Roseburg and the immediately surrounding it? We're all one county. We all need services. Why are they wiping us off the map? And they close the libraries. People are looking at us nationally, throughout the United States, going, what the, what is Douglas County about? I mean, they are the pit of Oregon, and we are. But we're here to change that, and we're not going away. Thank you, Terry. You betcha. <laughs> What's your name? M.A. Hansen. Well, M.A., what do you think about the... Uh, a Jordan Cove project and the fact that they want to do eminent domain to residents of Douglas County. Now, the county commissioners have said, we don't believe in eminent domain, yet they seem to be promoting the pipeline. Well, actually, it's all four counties. It's four counties that are being affected by eminent domain. Our commissioners have made the statement many times, the current commissioners have made the statement that they would not support eminent domain. We had a petition signed by a good majority of these landowners that they would never, the only way that Jordan Cove would ever 
get their land was through eminent domain. If only one landowner signed that, that should make these commissioners come out against this pipeline. The commissioners in, in the other counties, I think Jackson, came out against the pipeline. They have all stated they would not do, they would not support it, support eminent domain. So, so to the, me, it's a dead deal. It's a dead deal, and because you can't not support eminent domain and support the pipeline at the same time. That's the opposite, yes. Yeah, and they've said it themselves. And so Jackson County commissioners have come Jackson. out opposed to the pipeline. They know that a foreign corporation will take the property of Jackson County residents, and they've come out opposed to that. Douglas County commissioners also know a foreign corporation wants to take with eminent domain Douglas County residents, yet Douglas County facilitates this pipeline by giving permits that the judge found to be illegal? Yes, yes. They, they renewed permits that were over their due, due date, is my understanding. Right. And they turned around, and I think even once, I think they even brought it up to Jordan Cove themselves. Oh, they often remind Jordan Cove. Yeah, they oh, remind to, them. It's like... You have to come in and sign your renewal permit, you know, and it's just... I, and then they just did it even though it was outdated. And they did it even when the pipeline was uh, denied by the federal government in 2016. There was no pipeline project. Mm -hmm. They still renewed a permit for no project. Yeah, well, okay. you know, at one time, all three of our commissioners were against the pipeline. Yeah. And our governor was. And... Things change. All of a sudden. Okay. Thank you, M.A. Thank you. Great. What's your name? My name is Arden Carter. Why are you here today, Arden? I came to, uh, you know, the, the idea of transparency. Uh, recent events that happened out at Whistler's Bend Park caught us all off guard. And uh, I don't think that should have happened. As a golfer that's been involved with the Whistler's Bend Park and the disc golf community for over 20 years here in Douglas County, um, it really was quite a shock to see something like that happen without us knowing and or being part of it. And uh, right. the more this um, parks department, um, they shut people out and things of that nature, and we just need to say, hey, come on, we all used to work together. The park is what it is because we've worked together all these years. And suddenly we got someone who's chopping down the trees. I mean, it's and, a park. They could have marked the trees to be cut right. and put up a sign that said, right. what, what do you think about this? Right, you know? right, and they didn't. No. Or are these, hazard tr are these trees really hazardous? We yeah. didn't see anything like that. Or are there some of the trees that could be topped and kept for wildlife? Right. Or are there some right on the banks of the Umqua River? Right. You know, that could have been kept for wildlife. Kept there. And, and no, that wasn't... It wasn't a thought that went through their head, I imagine. No. Or how do we get around that? They only know how to log. They right. don't know about wildlife or enhancing parks. We should have had a tree trimming service go in there and take out the hazardous trees, leave the rest alone. But you know what I just saw was a picture of an oak, a deck of oak trees, a big deck of oak trees. Now, why do you suppose they're cutting down oak trees? Well, uh, the ones that were on the hillside there, I don't know. They don't use the oak trees for much more than firewood nowadays, do they? And um, so, you know, I, I have no idea, you know, um, and they, they, they weren't were, that hazardous. I mean, and, you, okay, we live in Oregon. We live amongst the trees, okay? We know when we go out in the woods that you got to be paying attention because it can be hazardous. And so to say we're coming in and we're going to cut these things down for safety, okay, then cut down all the trees. 
because eventually one of every single one of them is going to fall down, just like we all pass away. Okay, so then do we get rid of everything? No. But I came today asking for uh, more responsible stewardship with our park. Let's not let's not be taking our stuff out of the ground and seeing what money we can make from our parks. Okay, let's keep those parks beautiful and the way they're supposed to be for all the coming generations for that nature. And when they logged, they didn't provide the proper notice to ODF so that they didn't get the notice back from ODF that there was an osprey nest right, right. there where they were logging. Right. And so we don't know. I mean, yeah. a lot of those trees were cut down before right. they before got the nest. Before any got yeah. the If we... Okay, all we're really asking our public officials to do is everything they ask us to do if we wished to work with them. Okay, you have to file this. You have to go to this meeting. You have to know these people. You have to let people know. We can't do anything unless they give us the okay at 100%. Like I said, we put all that disc golf course stuff out there, and we did it all working with the county. We raised the money to put it in there gifted it at the county when we're done because we want the park to be a beautiful and wonderful place for people to always keep coming to. And uh, it just whatever the new parks department is, you know, they're, uh, and they're hard to approach. They've raised fees on everything to make it almost adversarial to want to come out and, and uh, enjoy the park. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's a tough one, yeah. yeah. There is that. Uh, well, thank you very much. You bet Thank you, Francis. You're Keep welcome. up the good work. Okay, thanks. I'll do my best. All right. I hope there's a younger version <laughs> of you out there. Oh, though. my God. Me, too. Yeah. <laughs> We're taking on. Yeah, me, too. Uh, what's your name? Hello, my name is Barbara Lynch, and I am coming to the rally today to draw attention to the quarry issue. We do not want any secret quarry deals are there secret quarry deals? What, what's happening with the quarries? There are quarries being bought up and purchased by this company so that they can have the ability to spread the gravel for this project in Jordan Cove. What's wrong with quarries? They can cause pollution to the rivers and to the landscape. And where are these quarries? There's one up in Glide People up in Glide are very upset about this because they have said no, no, no. And still the county commissioners are saying, let's look into this. Let's consider this project to be okay. And the quarry was closed for a long time. And now our current county commissioners are saying, let's give it a green light. Let's let them go ahead and have this quarry up in Glide. Well, thank you for that. Yes, you're welcome. Now I hear someone on the podium talking about dump fees. Let's go listen. And tore down the windmill in, got to ship all that debris to the Douglas County landfill, and unlike everybody else, didn't have to pay the fees. They got a special deal from the county commissioners. That's well and good. I think it's good that we give special deals to rich people like the Hanna family. They need it. The more money they get, we get more of a trickle-down effect, don't we? Oh, yeah, right. Well, anyways, they muzzled. It was Chris Boyce, Commissioner Boyce, who kicked off the chair of the committee that oversees landfill permits and fees, kicked him off on the Wednesday that he said he was going to bring it up to talk about things like fees for the Hanna family. So again, it seems like the county commissioners are increasingly muzzling people and not listening to the things that they don't want to hear, like from people from Reedsport. Thank you. 
Now we're going to drop in on a conversation with John and Robin about the Glide Quarry. Robin, did you recently go to a protest of the quarry in Glide? Yes, it wasn't so much a protest. It was a meeting of, of local citizens from Glide and the surrounding areas, many of which were would be personally affected by the creation of that quarry. And And so... They're opposed to the quarry, and how would they be impacted? There are a number of things. Dust, noise, traffic, and they're very specific issues. Where they want to have the road, uh, the road that would go from Highway 138 to the quarry is on a blind corner. So with large gravel trucks coming in around a blind corner, and this is a blind corner, that's and it's located right next to an RV park, many of which have pers- are, are permanent resident um, residences. So the people live there, although they're living in RVs. But the road that comes from the quarry to the highway, it passes by the boundary of the RV park. Right, right. And then there were other people that owned land in the area along the road um, that would be impacted. Obviously, their land is... Values are going to diminish because of the traffic, because of the dust, because of the noise. Noise was another big issue because they're going to be blasting up there. And calling it a quarry is correct, but what it really is is a mining operation. And everything that goes along with mining, dynamiting, rock crushers, and all of that's going to have a huge impact on the quality of life for that whole area, as well as... um, the dust factor is significant because it will affect the North Umpqua River. It it cannot every time the wind is from the from the north, the northeast, all of the dust that's raised by those trucks and by the mining operation itself is going to blow right into the North Umpqua and degrade the water quality substantially. And so, where is this in the process with the Douglas County permits? Yeah. On February 13, 2019, the Douglas County Board of Commissioners approved a conditional use permit for a large rock quarry at milepost 19.3 on Highway 138. This will have adverse effects on our pristine North Uncle River. The river provides essential habitat, habitat for wild steelhead, two species of salmon, resting areas for migratory waterfall, and the source of drinking water for thousands of people. Additionally, heavy truck Traffic will increase with large rock-laden trucks traveling down Highway 138. Those who oppose this conditional use permit have the option of taking legal action or living with the unacceptable outcomes that has far-reaching and negative consequences for our North Umpqua River. Attorney Ron Hostetter has been retained to handle the appeal to the Land Use Board of Appeals, LUBA, now, when they, when the county commissioners originally gave them the permit that's now the subject of the Luba appeal, did they hold a, a hearing? Was were all the Glide residents able to come? No, and, there was no public input. They went to the planning commission in December of 2018, and the Correct. planning commission voted it down and said no. Yes. Correct. The uh, owner the owner appealed it. Yeah. Appealed the planning department's decision to the county commissioners. So the, in January, the Douglas County Commissioners voted to go against yeah. the recommendation of the Planning Commission. Yeah. And was there a public hearing when they voted against that? Those that had witnessed status 
that had already testified for the Planning Commission and had submitted documentation. So there was a few who could testify at that hearing, and they uh, ignored their concerns and yes. voted anyway yes. to give the permit. It's amazing that the, why does the Douglas County Commissioners have a Planning Commission that they don't follow the recommendations? What's the point? Tim Freeman has received a lot of campaign funds from Knife River, who would be one of the primary sources of its rock. So Tim Freeman received $15,000 from Knife River. A part of the reasons the commissioners gave for the rationale is that that's the only quarry around that gets rock that can be made into asphalt, and which is not true. Which is not true. And there's no other, no other quarry around that they can use. There, there is. It's about the same distance. I think there's only a six or eight miles difference. It's just not owned by these particular people. They just didn't give the biggest campaign donation. Correct. Thank you, John and Robin, for talking about the quarry and why you are here today at the demonstration, and now we're going to find some other folks to talk to. While the rally for transparency was occurring, the citizens of Canyonville were having to boil their drinking water. All we were told was that it was due to turbidity. Turbidity? Dirt in the water? What could have caused that? Could it have been logging in the watershed? We know there have been lots of new clear-cuts in the South Umco watershed where Canyonville gets their drinking water. There should be an investigation. And if the turbidity was caused by logging, then the logging companies should pay to clean it up. There is nothing more than important than clean drinking water. And as we heard earlier in this show from Dr. John Talbert, Oregon's logging regulations do not protect drinking water sources. That's it for Conservation Today. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks. And if you get a chance next weekend, go to Eugene for the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference. It's from February 28th through March 3rd. I will be presenting on an LNG Jordan Cove panel at 3 o'clock on March 1st. This is one of the biggest environmental conferences in the world, and it is free, and it's just in Eugene. You can download a schedule at PIELC.org and I'll have that link below. Thank you.